0: You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before your people and preach. I pray that as I do so today, it would be you who Speaks and not me, and that anything I say that is in error, that you would have everyone forget quickly. Um, Lord, I think of all the families in our church right now that are going through sickness and hardship. I think of the Pollocks and the Whartons, um, and so many others who are dealing with sickness in different levels and just the difficulty that that is. And Lord, we know that you care for your children, all of us, and uh, we, lift, we lift each other up to you that you would comfort us and heal us and protect us as only you can as our good Father. Amen. So, we're going to read from our scripture passage in just a second. Um, actually, no, but let's go ahead and let's do that now. So, if you, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, it'll be on the screen as well, but we're going to be flipping around in Isaiah a little bit, so if you're already open, that'll be helpful. Um, we're going to be reading specifically verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, by the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light that has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So as we get ready for the Christmas season, I'm sure many of us, especially the kids, are thinking about gifts. Um, Kids, what are some examples of really bad gifts that you've been given before? Aidan, you look contemplative. Can you remember a really bad gift that you got before? Anyone else? Yeah? Finn? Cursing. What'd you get? Cursing. Cursing? Yeah, that is not a good gift. <laughs> that is a stone or a serpent. <laughs> um, does any can an anyone remember any really good gifts that they received? Any, any good gifts? Yeah? A Nintendo Switch? A Nintendo Switch? Yeah, that was pretty exciting, I bet. So, for me, for as many seasons as I can remember, I've received at least one article of clothing each Christmas season. I'd wager that most people have a similar uh, experience as well. Maybe it's a set of uh, fancy socks, uh, colorful socks, or maybe it's a tie, um, or maybe even matching pajamas. Apparently, that's pretty popular. Um, For me, it's pants. Not hiking pants or suit pants, but just regular old jeans and khakis. Um, in fact, I have been blessed with so many pairs of pants that there is a special drawer at home where I, for the pants that I haven't had time yet to wear. Um, and there is nothing I've been able to do to dissuade my family from continuing to supply pants. Um, apparently, they think I'm in dire need and have endeavored to clothe me. Um, pants are a practical gift. They fill a very important need, but they're not very exciting. I don't wake up and think, oh yeah, I'm going to wear those new pair of pants today. Um, and I, I promise that volume is not the solution to my lack of excitement. Um, so, so what makes a good gift stand out from pairs of pants? Um, what, what makes a, a gift a truly a great gift, a memorable gift? One, one that stands the test of time, I think, is one that when you, you have the possibilities, you have the dreams of the future paired with the practicality and the needs of the present. Um, an engagement ring or your first car, perhaps. When received, these gifts immediately spark that imagination. There's something for now, but there's also a dream of the future. Um, I know when I gave Rebecca an engagement ring and she agreed to marry me, we spent the weekend dreaming of what our lives would look like in the future. But in the moment, our lives right there were changed as well. Without that commitment between us, those conversations would have been very different. We'd had lots of conversations about the future, but none like those conversations. The ring, that gift, that made them different. Um, perhaps you remember when you got your first car, maybe you dreamed about, you know, going to 7-Eleven at late at night or going on a road trip. Without a car, those are just dreams, they're not reality. It's having the car that takes those from dreams to things you can actually do. The best gifts happen when the person giving the gift can realize a combination of need, a practical need, and a, a desire and a hope and excitement. Um, when these two come together, that's, I think, when we start to get the beginnings of a really great gift. Today we're gonna be looking at a really great gift to us. I'd say the probably the best gift we'll ever receive or ever have received. That's the life of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we see in Isaiah verse, uh, chapter nine, verse six, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. As we walk through our text today, look for the hallmarks of a really great gift. See how this, see how Jesus, his life, his death, the child in a manger, how that fills us with excitement for today, and for hope for the future. So a quick read of verses three, four, and five should really excite us. Even if you don't believe in God, I think these are things that we all want to see happen. In verse three, the population is growing. That could be maybe more children are being born, maybe life expectancy, we're living longer. But I think also in view here is a unity. The nations are coming together from many nations into one nation. That nation is growing, it is increasing. And as a result, there is much joy. The unity, the people joining together, we're all invited to join in this community of God's people. Not only is there unity, but those who seek to destroy and inflict oppression are broken. They will no longer have power to control or subjugate. The people are free. Verse five tells us that the garments of war will be burned for they'll have no other use. The wisdom, strength, compassion, and peace of God will descend in the form of a child, and he, this child, will bring this about. Doesn't that sound awesome? Does that sound awesome? Yeah, all right, I excited. Um, Who doesn't want to be a part of a community built on peace and joy, where the rod of oppression is broken? Maybe that rod of oppression language is sort of too big for us today, but think of all the frustrations and the difficulties that you have on a day-to-day basis. Those are removed, those are broken. Almost everyone, regardless of our our background, maybe our, our socioeconomic status, our political leanings, regardless of all that, we all want peace, stability, food for our communities, and long life for our families. And this is all made possible through Christ. So what what makes this promise different? Because we've heard promises before, you know, the Bible is full of lots of stories. Some are set in times of peace, some are set in times of war. And you know, peace will come, but then there's another war. And then peace will come, but then there's another war. We have this cycle of peace and war and it, it seems unbroken. But in in the beginning of verse 7 we see that the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forevermore. This peace is different. This is an unending peace that is growing forever. It's increasing. The increase of his government, there will be no end. So to help us better understand this future promise, it's helpful to look back a little earlier in Isaiah to chapters 7 and 8, which are set in the period after Israel's civil war, which split the country in two. We had the northern tribes of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. As we read these chapters, we start to see why our world is so broken and what God has already done to restore it. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1a says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Risen, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remiliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. As we continue to read Isaiah chapter 7, we see that the northern tribes of Israel and Syria are beginning to, uh, they're, they're realizing the threat of the Assyrian army, and so they, wanna kick, they want Ahaz to join them in a war against Assyria, but Ahaz refuses. He doesn't, he doesn't play along, and so they threaten him. They're going to come into Judah, they're going to kill him, kick him out, and they're going to replace him with someone else in the throne who's sympathetic to their cause, and as a result, Ahaz is a little afraid. He's terrified, Uh, So God responds by sending the prophet Isaiah to counsel Ahaz and to bring him comfort. Isaiah tells Ahaz that Israel and Syria will not prevail against Judah, and that in 65 years they will be destroyed and no longer a threat. If Ahaz places his trust in God, he will have nothing to fear. God even grants Ahaz a sign, any sign, as a way to give him courage against the threat of Israel and Syria. But instead of trusting God and responding in faith by asking for a sign, Isaiah refuses the Lord's request. So we have in in chapter seven, verse 12, it says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put my Lord to the test. Now, I think some of us, maybe at first glance, that seems a little confusing. We've seen in a few different places in the Bible that we should not put God to the test, right? That's not something we're supposed to do. But here, it's a false sense of spirituality. Ahaz saying, oh no, I I won't put the Lord to the test. He's not really willing to trust God. If we remember the story of Gideon, we remember that Gideon did ask the Lord for two tests, or there were two two sort of uh, metrics that Gideon wanted to prove to himself that God really was strong enough or powerful enough to save him. The difference between Gideon and Ahaz, however, seems to be in their desire or willingness to trust God with their lives. Gideon is terrified about battling the Midianite army and is having trouble trusting in God, but he wants to. He's asking for these signs because he he really, there is in his heart a desire to trust in God, whereas Ahaz he has been commanded by God, said, Ask for a sign, I will give you anything. And Ahaz is refusing God's request. He actually demonstrates an unwillingness to trust God. His false spirituality is just an excuse because he thinks he doesn't need God's help. And if we look in some other places in the Bible, in this case, 2 Kings sixteen seven through 9, we start to see some of the context about maybe why that's happening. So, in, and starting in verse 7, we have So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and set a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captives to Kerr, and he killed Rizin, now the former king of Syria. So when, when we read Ahaz's request to the king of Assyria, That sounds an awful like what maybe it should have sounded, his request to God, but instead of placing his God in, placing his trust, sorry, in God, he places his trust in money, his money ability to buy the king of Assyria, he places it in earthly power, and ultimately he places it in himself, his ability to figure things out on his own. He thinks he's smart, he doesn't need God, he doesn't need a sign, why would he? He's already bought and paid for his salvation. In response to Ahaz's arrogance and rejection of God, that's ultimately what it is. He's rejected God in favor of something else. Uh, God says in Isaiah 7, 17, the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Not only will the king of Assyria destroy the northern tribes of Israel and Syria, he will conquer Judah as well. Life will be so bad that it'll be like the days of on the Israel, uh, Israel Civil War. When, when that con- country split in two, there was, uh, you know, a, there was war, there was strife, there was conflict between families during the Civil War, and, and that is what this will look like now for Judah. The very army that Ahaz hired to defend him will instead conquer him and destroy him. Ahaz compares the armies of the Assyrians to the insects swarming the countryside. Nothing is left untouched by their blades. They cover everything in sight. He goes further and says that the Lord will hire the king of Assyria to shave Judah, clearly mocking his attempt to get Assyria to actually help him and defend him. In chapter 8, the bleak picture of judgment continues as Isaiah compares the mighty rivers of the Euphrates swelling their banks to to the Assyrian army as they sweep through the land, destroying everything in sight. So, kids, imagine for yourself that you are Isaiah. Do you think that'd be pretty easy to tell your king these things? Jacob, you're shaking your head no, probably not so easy. What about not just your king, but all the really powerful politicians and the nobles? What about your friends? What about your family? I mean, these are all the people that are hearing Isaiah's prophecy, and it's in this that God comes to Isaiah, speaks to him, and comforts him. God reminds Isaiah that he need not fear the things of this earth, but should instead honor the Lord and fear him ultimately. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17, sorry, 14 through 15 says, and he... The Lord will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. To those who place their trust in the Lord and honor him as holy, he will be a sanctuary, a rock of refuge and a firm foundation but to those who do not honor the Lord as holy and instead despise the truth, that same rock will become a rock of stumbling. God's people, the people of Israel and Judah, are now stumbling on that rock, the Lord. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and taken. Not only has Ahaz failed to place his trust in God, but the people themselves, it's not just the king, it's the whole people, they've done this as well. Chapter eight, verse 19, tells us that God's chosen people have pushed God aside preferring to ask the dead for help and understanding rather than their living God. They're a practice of seeking the dead, asking the dead questions. Um, they would rather do that to those who can't speak than to their God who they know speaks, who they have a record of speaking with. Verse 20 continues saying that those who reject God and God's word choose to live in darkness. And finally, chapter 8 finishes in verse 21 and 22 saying, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. These people have entirely rejected the truth of the Lord, so much so that they would rather inquire of the dead than the living God. The result is a life lived in darkness. They are hungry for truth and understanding, but when they look up to God, it is only to shake their fists at him. They remain empty and unsatisfied because they have rejected the only source of light and truth. When they look down, they are met with only distress and darkness. All around them is darkness. They have turned completely away from God. So, at this point, you're thinking, man, that's a real great Advent sermon. how How does this fit in? How does this fit with the wonderful promises, the joy, and the hope that we have in Isaiah chapter 9? The real issue that we see in chapters seven and eight is not that Syria and the northern tribes of Israel are aggressing on Judah, or that eventually Assyria will dominate and destroy Judah. The real problem on display in these chapters is that God's chosen people, and ultimately all people, have rejected God completely. They rejected him time and time again, and now they reap the fruit of that rejection. Separation from God, and as a result, complete darkness. But it's not just them, right? We've done the same thing and continue to do the same thing day in and day out. Even us, as we sit here today, even those of you who might proclaim to be Christian and say you know God and have a relationship with God, we do this daily. We're no better. And how can any of us expect to have peace with each other when we don't have peace with the one who made us? The end of chapter 8 in Isaiah is bleak, but praise the Lord, the story does not end there. The power of sin and darkness that strangles the world is not absolute. In most modern English translations, the first word of chapter nine is but, like in the ESV, or in the the NIV and some others, it's nevertheless. This is a turning point. For we don't just have a record of brokenness and despair and separation from God, but now we have hope, we have a promise, something to look forward to. And uh, it's not just that the Assyrian army is going to be destroyed and that Judah will be, a remnant won't be preserved, that is true, but ours is so much more. We have peace and reconciliation between God himself. Hope that we might all be restored to God through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what God has been driving at throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. God promises his son because without him we are helplessly lost in a sea of darkness. Nothing that we can do will ever be able to right the wrongs of this world apart from him. All the pain and the suffering that we see and experience on a daily basis, all of this can be made right. And as long as we continue to, re- but as long as we continue to reject God as our savior and king, we will continue to dwell in deep darkness, hungry and unsatisfied. Most of us have probably heard someone say something to the effect of, you can't earn or uh, merit your own salvation, right? We've, we've probably heard that a lot. Um, and, and maybe to the Christian, this makes a lot of sense. We've heard it, we've heard it in context, we understand it. But to the non-believer, why would you even care? What, what do you need saving from? What is, this is what the end of chapter is all about. It isn't just that without Christ's birth, his life, and his death, and subsequent resurrection, that we have an eternity of separation from God ahead of us. That's true, we have that, um, or we would have that. Um, but it's that separation from God is a dark and miserable thing, filled with disease, famine, war, poverty, hunger, and death that never really dies. Nothing we can do will ever be able to establish the lasting peace and poverty, and hunger. That those are the things we want. We can't do that. A quick survey of world history should cure us of that notion. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. No one is moral or righteous enough, and there isn't anyone who hasn't already rejected God. The key to our hope lies in the second half of the verse, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Everyone can have hope because Jesus stands in the gap. Our sins, our iniquities, all of it is laid on him that we might be able to be restored to God. So with this in mind, let's reread our verses from Isaiah chapter nine. Verses one and two say, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So Matthew four twelve and 17 tells us that Jesus is the great light. and the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, his light begins to shine on all who lived formerly in deep darkness. This region located in the northern border of Israel was likely the first area of the northern tribes to be invaded by the Syrian armor, uh, army. This former gloom is now made glorious. Notably, Jesus begins his ministry not in Jerusalem, the heart and center of Jewish thought, but he begins it in Galilee, an area heavily populated by Gentiles. There is hope for all who walk in darkness because the light has shone on us all. Continuing in verse 3 through 5, it says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah's initial listeners would have been thinking of the destruction of Assyria, but today we know that much more is being promised here. Not only will Assyria be defeated, but Satan himself, the ultimate oppressor will be defeated, just as God defeated the Midianite army of 135,000 with Gideon's puny army of 300 men. The seemingly impossible is possible through Christ. And finally, verses 6 and 7. This is the ones, these are the ones that I think we hear the most at this season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will do this. We see the Lord at work in verses one through three as he brings light into darkness and along with it rest security, and abundance. And in verses four through five, he brings an end to war itself. But how is this done? How can we have peace with God? Verse six tells us how. God will begin to accomplish this through the birth of a child in a manger. Not only do we learn what Christ will do, but we can see what kind of person he will be. Who is Christ? He is wise. He always provides wise counsel. The great wisdom of Solomon himself pales in comparison to the one who gave it to him. He's also mighty God, a claim to Godhood himself. He is powerful to save us. The very one who created the world and in all that it is in it, we should not doubt his ability to save us. He is also the everlasting father. This is not father in a Trinitarian sense, but rather another claim to divinity in that he is everlasting. He has always been and always will be, but not cold and distant like a king would be. He is close and personal, compassionate like a parent would be. The way that good parents here have compassion on their children, he has compassion on us. The wonderful, powerful, amazing creator of the universe, wise counselor, mighty God, he loves us, you, as we are today, right now. Isaiah ends his list by describing the character of Jesus by calling him the Prince of Peace. The reign of Christ will be marked by peace. He is peace and he brings peace. My favorite part is the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will do this. What an awesome thing to hear. He is zealous for us. He doesn't just have to do this. He doesn't just want to. He is zealous to do this for us. So today we sit on the other side of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And yet there is still so much war and brokenness in our world. We dare not burn our military garments even 2,000 years after Christ's death. Because we know that in our world is anything but peaceful. If we need proof, we only need to look as far as Israel and Hamas or Russia and Ukraine. Even in our own country, the political divide, the, just the, the nastiness of those conversations, that, that laughs at the idea of peace and unity. So how can we have peace? Why is peace so far out of reach? If we have the prince of peace himself, why is there so little peace around us? Verse 2 says, On them a light has shone but the light shining upon us is not sufficient to reconcile us to God. Not all choose the light, many refuse. John 3:19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Though the light is shown to all, not all will choose the light for their love of darkness. The peace promised in this passage comes in two stages. First, it restores us to God personally, And second, it restores us to God corporately as a people. I can have peace, you can have peace with God because of who Christ is and what he has done for us, past tense. And this enables us to live at peace with those around us. But this peace isn't made complete until the second coming of Christ when the world itself is renewed and restored. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy hill, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. For he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In short, our world is still full of war, death, and decay, because our world has not yet been made new. And while the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of those who have accepted Him, God does not dwell with us as a people as He did in the beginning of creation. There is still a measure of separation between us. So here we sit, in a broken world between prophecy an ultimate fulfillment, between the birth and the second coming. We all long for peace, peace between nations, neighbors, and friends, family. And until we stop rejecting God and accepting Him, we can't, be, we can't expect there to be an end to all of the things that make this world stink, all of the pride and the greed, the racism, the misogyny, the, 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 the lust for power, all of these things, they're not marked by what Christ has done Jesus' whole life and ministry is focused on proclaiming and living out the reality of what it looks like to be in right relationship with God. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the good news is preached to the poor. During this season, we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, that we might be with him. But knowing isn't enough. The Pharisees do much of the Old Testament. They probably had prophecies like this memorized from a young age. So they would be ready to see it when it came. Now we look back and we think, how ridiculous. I implore you, if you've not yet received the hope of Christ, to place your faith in him to do so today. If someone's invited you here today, talk with them. If you just showed up, talk with Chewy, Lars, myself. We would love nothing more than to talk about this further with you. A gift that is not received accomplishes nothing. It cannot be enjoyed or benefited from. If Rebecca had not accepted my wedding ring, all of those conversations would have been meaningless, right? You have to receive that. And without a gift, there is no hope of salvation for the despair of this world. No peace on earth, no peace between nations, neighbors, or family. And certainly no peace between you and God. To to the Christian, to you who have already accepted this gift, what is asked of you? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I missed my page turn. I'm not that good at this, guys. I just got confused and nervous. We're all good. <laughs> so the Christian, for you who have already accepted this gift, what is asked of you? What should you do now that you have received Christ? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through, 19, uh, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, and making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A gift is best when shared with others. Don't sit on the sideline this Christmas season as you enjoy God's gift to you from the comfort and security of your home. Don't hide the good news from those who don't have it and desperately need it. Like the angels before the shepherds, loudly and boldly proclaim the message of the cross, the birth of our Savior, and the glory of God as you have been entrusted the message of reconciliation. Don't waste the gift that you've been given. Go back out and give it to others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word the opportunity that we have to gather together as a people to open your word, to read from it, to let your Holy Spirit speak to us and to teach us. Lord, help us as a people to be one, united in our pursuit of you, and that in doing so that we would share your message of love and sacrifice to this whole world. Lord, may we be your faithful ambassadors as a church, and Lord, for those here that might not know you, Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts. Soften them that they might come to know how sweet you are in a way that we do. I ask all this in your name. Amen.